0: Welcome to the YVR screen scene podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart of the Vancouver film and television industry. Namely, the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Firminger. Is the Vancouver film and television industry racist? How can we possibly dismantle anti-Black racism in the industry while servicing American shows that blatantly practice tokenism? What are microaggressions, and how and when do Black film workers experience them? Those are only some of the questions we covered in Amplifying Black Voices, a panel discussion organized by the Vancouver Asian Film Festival that took place online on June 13th. I was honoured to moderate the event, which featured Rokia Bernard, Miriam Barry, Andy Hodgson, Jem Garrard, and Zach Lepofsky talking honestly and openly about white supremacy and anti-blackness in the Vancouver film and television industry. I'm going to share part of that conversation today. To watch a video of the complete panel, please check out the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening. It's important. Black Lives Matter. Today, we share the space with Miriam Berry, Rukia Bernard, and Andy Hodgson. Miriam Berry is a multidisciplinary artist from Norway and the Gambia. She's an actor. Writer and producer in both the theater and film industry. Rakia Bernard is a Leo Award winning and UBCP Actra Award nominated actress. She's best known for playing Doc on sci fi's popular post apocalyptic vampire series, Van Helsing. Andy Hodgson is a cinematographer and producer at Red Castle Films. He's worked on projects such as my daughter's favorite show, the Netflix original series Project MC Square. And his latest feature film, The Incredibly Thrilling Woodland. Later in the stream, we will welcome Jem Garrard, the showrunner of Vagrant Queen, and Zach Lepofsky, the director of Freaks, Mech X4, and Kim Possible, and the elected director representative at the British Columbia branch of the Directors Guild of Canada. For now, they're listening Mariam, Rakia, Andy. Thank you for your generosity and your time and <laughs> being here today. Um, let's begin with that. Why are you here today? Why have you agreed
2: to participate in this panel? Miriam, can we start with you? Definitely. Um, there are so many reasons why I'm here today. And I think the biggest thing is that like I have to show up for my life and I have to show up for my other Black artists in this time particularly. Um, I think as a black person right now, like I'm navigating so many emotions, not just the pandemic, but Mm. all the police brutality and the conversations that we've been having in the community for years, rising up to the surface. And it is a hopeful time because I'm seeing systematic change on, or the hope of systematic change worldwide. But at the same time, now we're having these conversations again and conversations with people who are catching up. So it's learning how to bridge those spaces. And so I'm here to also um, connect with Annie and Rekia and then also just amplify my own voice and say that these are my experiences as a Black artist here in the Vancouver film and TV industry and talk about some very specific incidents that I have experienced that I've raised up to <laughs> in so many different conversations, but now I feel like more people are tuning in and maybe hearing me in a different
3: way. So that's why I'm here.
0: Mm, Wonderful. What about you, Andy?
3: Uh, Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I'm grateful to be here. Uh, In honesty, I wanted to represent um, being half Black and half Latino. I find that there is not only racism on the Black side of it, but also on the Latino side. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wanted to represent for the film industry in Vancouver, um, been in the industry for about 16 years, and the number of Black people have definitely increased in the industry. Uh, giving us a bit more of a fighting chance uh, with, so they're getting the better jobs, uh, you know, getting into those rooms, getting sort of the, the, the feel of what it is to kind of work in and around sort of a white, uh, uh, more of a white-dominated uh, platform uh, as the film industry. So I wanted to kind of uh, give you guys sort of the uh, overall look of, how I personally have dealt with being here the last 15 years and also in South America. And I feel that not only in talking to uh, people of my age, around their 40s, but also to talk to new filmmakers who are of color, who are just starting out in this industry and how, you know, we could potentially help them grow and understand how to kind of further themselves in their career.
0: Wonderful, Rakia.
4: Hi. Hi. Thanks for for having me, guys. And I think it's very important um, and I feel grateful that uh, the Vancouver Asian Film Festival has decided to host this panel. Um, I've been a part of many diversity and inclusion panels before committees. Um, I feel an obligation as an actor who has been doing this a long time um, to share my experiences. And to pass them on, there's a lot of younger Black actresses and actors in general who look up to me and reach out to me. And I'm in constant contact with them, trying to help them not make the same mistakes as I have made, of course. Um, But I've just seen and heard too many consistencies with young actors who are half my age experiencing the same discrimination that I've experienced from when I started my career until now. Um, it has to change. And being Black, being an actor, it is my duty that I'm here to share my experiences with everybody, especially now that people are actually hearing it on a core level. That's why I'm here.
0: All right. Let's get into this then. This is, it sounds like a simple question, but it's not. It's a big question. Is the Vancouver film and television industry racist? Does racism, discrimination, white supremacy exist in this industry up here? Why, why not? Who wants to take that first?
4: (laughs) (laughs) You know, Sabrina, I'm just gonna say this right now. Um, This is a very challenging question because as actors, as directors, as producers, we answer to people, right? our higher ability is dependent on being a good team player and like ready to rip. So I, you know, it's been challenging for me and I'm sure for you, Maryam and Andy to speak up about like, that was a microaggression.
5: Yeah. You're in the middle of a shoot, right?
4: <laughs> so I'm going to preface my answer by saying that like even simply being here and speaking my truth i put my career which i've been doing for 20 years on the line yes there is racism here in the vancouver film industry and in the film industry period
2: yes
3: i feel uh, in in terms of the film industry in vancouver i've definitely have felt it you know numerous times um Most of you that might be watching, uh, I used to have a big Afro and going into some meetings with maybe some bigger producers, you know, I would kind of think, should I shave my head? Should I maybe wear a hat? Or Mm -hmm. are they going to accept me for the way I look? Or, you know, maybe perhaps wearing these kind of shirts that I have about 10 of them, you know? So there, there has been times that I've definitely thought, I've been looked at, whether it's been a, a cinematographer role or the producer role, in terms of, well, you're a person of color, so I don't know what you could bring to the table. So mm-hmm. I definitely think it is kind of hidden behind the sort of uh, uh, <laughs> behind the screen, uh, no pun intended. But also in terms of, we work on a lot of white content. Yeah. You know, so as a cinematographer is I'm shooting a lot of white content, you know, I'm shooting a a lot of Hallmarks, I'm shooting a lot of, uh, um, you know, Netflix and Mm -hmm. so I feel uh, as the producer in me, uh, I'm also still doing white content, but wanting to sort of uh, steer away from that and bring more black content in the community in Vancouver.
5: Mm
2: to say okay. that like Rokia just spoke the whole truth <laughs> and that's like something that i wanted to say as well in terms of like us being here as black artists and black bodies on the screen right now saying like these are our experiences like we are putting our career on the line and but this is something that we're consistently fighting against as creatives in the industry um 100 yeah. percent. the vancouver film industry is racist and yeah. anti-black in a lot of ways that it manifests itself from the casting room to the writing room etc cetera, etc cetera. and I think I was also really shocked by like a lot of the incompetence sometimes that I encounter on set even like Andy um spoke about as well like with black hair mm-hmm. coming through hair and makeup and they don't know how to do my hair and it's obvious mm-hmm. and then when I'm sitting in the chair and seeing this white hairdresser struggling to figure out what to do and it's like okay oh, I'm gonna just Throw this in a bun because I don't know what to do. It's like, okay, I'm thinking in my head, like, okay, there are so many conversations here that slipped because you knew that you hired me and Mm -hmm. you know what my hair looks like. So where, like, how could this have like been dropped? We also know the politics of black hair and what it means to showcase it and celebrate it on screen. Mm -hmm. This was also a very like big lost opportunity um, for you as the production. And I feel like these these things are really, really important at all in terms of like the difference between equity and equality. That like, you cannot say that you are a hairdresser and then you don't cater to a whole population of people. Mm. And, and, and,
4: and can I add to that? And then, cause on every single production I've done, I've done my own hair. Yeah. Hair department- Every been- single. Every single one. Wow. Every single one. The last movie I did, it was a young uh, swing, meaning she does hair and makeup. And I taught her what to do so that when I'm on set, she knows how to, you know, put me back so continuity works, right? Yeah. Um, But in the past, it's been a lot of having a mirror in my makeup bag and my hair bag so that they hold the mirror up for me and I'm the one putting my hair back in order
2: mm-hmm.
4: and it's and, like- and there's not sorry marion there's not no. one black actress that i have known and i know a lot that has not had this exact same experience at least once in their career mm-hmm. not one mm-hmm.
3: and i want to add to that point uh guys and absolutely correct i mean i'm not an actor and i'm sure if i went into their trailers they'd be confused about my hair but the one thing that uh you know, I notice a lot uh, that kind of, you know, puts me, rubs me the wrong way is I'll be staring at a call sheet and I get to set and never are black actors, they're number ones. I mean, never. if you look at all these MOWs, I've shot probably the last year, four or five MOWs. They're always the number three, the fourth, they're the, the boyfriend of the girlfriend or the best friend of the, you know, and, and every time we, you know, it's funny because when you see a black person I say you kind of click right away and it's kind of that thing you just give them a yeah. the nod and they're like hey
0: you're both you know? there yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah
3: but the reality is is that yes they and we are being left out in in sort of these higher positions uh you know in terms of being the number 1 or the number 2 leads, yeah. um, so they get kind of thrown into into the background of, oh, you're the supporting role. OK, you'll be the store clerk that they come for like two minutes and say hello, and that's kind of your your piece. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's blatantly out in the open. We've seen it. And if many of you have seen a call sheet, I can tell you many a times it's never the number one or the number two. Mm-mm.
4: Yeah, I've only been a number one once in my whole career. Jem actually got me close, but I think the robot in Android was oh, <laughs>
0: <yeah.
4: laughs> That's, That's right. Picture, but, a, you know, I get that. Um, I was number two there. Um, and then recently, um, Andy Alvarez's uh, Crazy H film okay. uh, Soul, I was number one. But I've been doing this 20 years. And up until those two more indie projects, um, the highest I've gotten was a number three. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And when, I, when we did the page count and everything, I really should have been number two on that mm-hmm. call sheet. Yeah.
2: Um, and yeah. I just wanted to as well like highlight something that Rukia just said in terms of like her having to do invisible labor on set. And it's mm-hmm. like we're not compensated or even credited for the things that we have to do to elevate your work or the production <laughs> in the end. So it's Dude, like I... Diversity and inclusion work. It's like, okay, Okay, and I'm a cultural consultant because I'm also having to tell you how to interact with me as a Black artist and how to respect mm-hmm. our stories or our bodies when you're showcasing them on screen. So I feel like that is also another huge issue that, like, we need to start talking about. And we need to start seeing it and appreciating it for what it is. Like, this is labor that should be compensated and valued and appreciated.
4: And not added to the hairstylist, uh portfolio. Because... Oh. Well, that's how they're hired, right? Like, oh, this right. is our cast. And can you do that? This is what we're looking for our show. This kind of look. And can you design this and whatnot? They'll go to, to Head of Hair for that. And then, of course, Head of Hair will have their website with their portfolio. And there's my work. And I've tried negotiating to get some compensation for hair. It doesn't work. And they're like, oh, no. <laughs> no, we have a hair department. I'm like, I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Exactly. Even YouTube
0: videos I've sent, they won't watch him. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Do you think, you know, given that Vancouver is such a service town and we are servicing these, you know, a a lot of these, you know, family rom-coms and the Christmas movies, and that where the formula that they use extends to how they use Black characters, Asian characters, and other characters from marginalized groups, you know, usually, like, putting but slotting us either into a supporting role um or if there's to be a black lead it has to be an all-black cast you know you can't have any you know people from mixing like from like do you think that it is going to be possible to fight the anti-black racism in this industry while we surface shows that have this formula um I don't know.
4: Um, That's one of the issues with Vancouver in general is that we are, as you said, a highly serviced town, meaning for anyone who doesn't know what that means, we service a lot of American productions. And I don't know what the statistics are, but I would argue it's about 90 to 95% of the productions done here in Vancouver
0: are American. I think that's Uh, actually very close to what the statistics were in the last couple of years, like more than 80% yeah service huge amount i mean a lot of there should be way more canadian content family law i think is like the only
4: show that is shooting that will probably hopefully
0: who is with the dgcbc has given us a stat of 95 percent. 95 percent.
4: right now canadian content is a different discussion to have because there's uh, i i people of color are highly misrepresented. uh, Sorry, not misrepresented, underrepresented in Canadian content. Um, Mm. But um, if we are servicing American productions, it's a part of American culture, which is, you know, related to Canadian culture, but it's American. And if they are showing number three and down on the call sheet as um, marginalized societies, I don't know if we in Vancouver the industry have much of a say in how we are able to recast that. I know casting directors try really, really, really hard yeah. to do it. Um, I'm often brought in as the ethnic alternative to try to be like, hey, I know you want this kind of look, but we can do this as well. Um, but it's an cha- uphill battle when You're working for someone, even as a producer here in Canada. So I I, I don't know.
3: Yeah, I mean, if you look at uh, the the service town, I think internally things have to change from the ground up, that being the overall picture of Hollywood
2: Mm, and who
3: started Hollywood and who runs Hollywood, because obviously these MOWs are not going to go to Africa, or they're not going to go to, you know, New Orleans or or places where it's heavily drawn with Black people uh, to go and make their movies. So they look at alternatives like Vancouver, you know, it's very white, it's very safe, uh, you know. So internally, I find it, it's going to be a long road in order to, even as a service town, to be able to Get more black people up here, or producers, uh, big, bigger directors, um, you know, bigger productions who are solely run by black people. Um, therefore, for us being here, it's going to have to be internally. And I think as we continue down the road of this uh, sort of battle, we as the people, we as the filmmakers, have to bring that out to the forefront.
2: Hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah all I'll say is like echo what something that you said in the beginning Sabrina which I feel like we need allies in like everywhere Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like we need allies at the top who are thinking about this and advocating for uh, black voices black leads etc to see that systematic change it can't just be like the actors and it can't just be um, the people here in Vancouver even like it needs to be everywhere
0: yeah yeah Okay, so I I want to go back to that idea of um, the the phrase that Rakia brought up, microaggressions, which I, I think is something that maybe unless you experience them on a regular basis, you might you might not know what that actually is. Rakia, can you talk a little bit more about what microaggressions are and and describe some of them that I mean we talked about the hair that is a a huge mm-hmm. one. We we talked about, you know, being the tokenism of being the only, you know, the only black person on a on a call ship. But like what, what are what is my, what are microaggressions and where do you encounter them in this industry? Um, uh, I encounter them a lot in the hair and makeup department
4: um, yeah. or not necessarily department, um, but also in the context of hair and makeup mm-hmm. um, and skin, uh, which is highly well, that's kind of what defines me as black, I guess, right? My skin and my hair. Um, And um, microaggressions are um, comments uh, that, though may seem innocent, um, are really just kind of poking and showing my blackness to me, as if I'm other than, for example, um, you know, my hair, I wear it natural, um, majority of the time. And uh, like Andy said in his story before when he had his beautiful big fro, I remember it. Um, it you know, people be like, oh my God, your hair is so, I just, and then all of a sudden, I've been. A, a, a stranger, nah, yeah, okay, here we go. Three, three out of three black people have had this exact thing. <laughs> And it's, we're talking about complete strangers putting their hands on my body without talking to me and without asking me, and without thinking like this is a weird thing. It's like you know when I walked with my dog when she was alive, people would be like, oh yeah, and so it feels the same. Like I'm treated like a dog, like a like a thing, like I'm on display to be gawked at, and oh, I'm amusing, right? Um, a friend of mine just posted on her Instagram about uh being in the makeup chair and the makeup lady was saying oh you you just have the best skin black people have the best skin and she's like what does that mean and I've heard this many times and as someone who's battled acne I was like oh it's my yeah I've been using the skincare line right <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but it, it, it's a comment on my skin because I'll see other actresses who are Caucasian in the chairs beside me. They're never getting that. Mm. They're never getting that. And so, you know, most people don't go about their lives having their race being called to them at multiple corners as they're just trying to go about their day.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Those are microaggressions. Mm-hmm. I can't and, just be a human.
2: Yeah. And just to put like Vancouver on heat a little bit, I think even in, in Vancouver specifically, there's such a limited understanding of what Blackness is mm-hmm. that I find as well, like in the room, in the audition room, that it's like, do it do it one take, and then it's like, OK, so Mary, can you just can you just be a little bit more urban? Mm. You know, like oh. a little bit. And like that happens all the time. And yep. it's, it's like, OK, let's question. <laughs> it's like, now we got to stop the audition, now we got to question why you're giving me these directives. So you have mm-hmm. only a certain understanding of what a Black person sounds like, or like this type of Black person based on the role and the description should sound more like this. So you want me to sound like more ghetto, you want me to sound, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, these are, these are huge moments of microaggression, which mm-hmm. I would also define as like acts, like small acts of violence.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Because now you once, once again now you're othering me and now you want me to perform for you, but also perform your understanding of blackness. Well, I'm a black person. This is my voice. Yeah, yeah I'm an actor and I can change it up. But be careful with what you're asking of me, because yeah. it's, it's, it's very ignorant.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. What What do you think your non-black peers failed to understand about working in this industry? acting on camera, working behind the camera, creating art while black. What do you want them to know?
3: I think first of all is sort of a, (laughs) that we probably work harder to get to where we need to be than potentially others uh, of different colors. Um, But also, you know, and just, just want to go back to that microaggression because I find there's such a difference. And now that, and I go back to the hair because when I had my big Afro, the small microaggressions, it's just like somebody coming up to me like, Yo, what up? You know, and they start <laughs> all of a sudden talking to me like I live in LA or I'm I'm in, you know, Texas or and then I sort of start speaking on behalf, never say the N word, you know, sort of that. And and they get taken up by like what you're not like a real black person, so I can't really like swag with you. So I find that a lot in Vancouver, uh, in terms of you know, the sort of uh, smaller microaggressions. So I think in going back to your question is, you know, to let them know that (laughs) we're also regular people and not to stereotype Mm. of what we see on TV or these rappers or, you know, because again, you know, we're articulate, we're beautiful Mm -hmm. and we have great voices.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think something else that like, non-black artists don't understand. It's like, and I find it specifically um, for black artists that are interested in telling their own stories and creating their own content, like in Vancouver, that is such an uphill battle. And yeah. so, so many conversations with like producers and just gatekeepers that um, keep telling me that like, oh, this, this project is not feasible because there's like, there's no, there's no black artists here. We also mm-hmm. need to change that narrative. Like I'm always huge on that, where I'm like, stop erasing us. Stop erasing us. I might say this three times, just stop erasing us because we're here and we've Mm -hmm. been here and we create. And then you cannot erase us and the opportunities that we are asking for to put our stories forward. And then you can't turn around and then say, oh, there's nobody here. Well, you're denying us at every level. Yeah. Yeah. And specifically, I think here in um, Vancouver as well, you have to interrogate that and understand the historical events that happened in which that was um, perpetuated the erasure of Hogan's Alley, et cetera, et cetera, just the erasure of Black history and the Black presence on these territories in general. Yeah, Like, there's, like, that's why when anyone, like, questions that and stops it, like, like it, it's really hurtful. It's really hurtful because you're not able to, like, elevate your community. You're not able to tell the stories that you think matter um, because of their understanding what's happening in the community. When it's, like, I am from the community and I'm telling you, like, we're here and we're ready and, like, we've been knocking on that door for a very long time.
3: Yeah, Um, what
0: what is your reaction to the current discourse in the zeitgeist about anti-Black racism and Blackness? Like, are we and by we, I mean mainstream media, people on social media, the independent media getting it right. Are we moving in the right direction with the conversation? Like, where can we improve? Well,
4: I don't know. It's funny, I, I'm, I feel hopeful because I am hearing uh, non-Black people uh, mainstream saying things that have been discussed amongst the Black community in diversity and inclusion, board meetings and whatnot for years, for generations. Um, I'm hearing it coming out of mouths that don't look like me. And that's the first time I've ever experienced that. So that gives me hope. Um, I worry that people will consider it a trend. Mm,
1: yeah.
4: And that things will peter off and the next thing will happen. And that'll be the focus of the cultural zeitgeist. Um, so I, I, I hope and pray that enough is shifted in this moment that it shifts. It's like we can genuinely see it in the future that something has shifted yeah um but well only time can tell right and we can only see what happens but until then i'm keeping my foot to the pavement i'm not stopping
0: yeah um what what are how will we know (laughs) <laughs> when we've dismantled anti-black racism and white supremacy in our industry like what are what are some of our what are some things that that you want to see happen
3: well first of all again it's it's kind of like politics you know until somebody at the top is not racist or is uh, of some other color um it's going to be pretty tough but i think we as the people what i'd love to see happen is for example me for getting a a higher role as a producer on a big show that mm-hmm. you know i kicked out the six white guys <laughs> that uh that are running that show um, <laughs> you know and i i think that's where change comes but in until then there needs to be a fight and sort of those voices put out and mm-hmm. without the sort of help with the mainstream media and and, and I just go back to who started Hollywood and who runs Hollywood and until any of that changes it's it's sort of a a never-ending battle but I would love to see uh, bigger roles for uh, bigger black actresses or actors um, you know producers like myself or other producers landing some of those bigger jobs because then again we're able to hire who we want you know, and and funny enough, uh, the other day I got a text uh, from a PM who's of color, and he says, I want to build a team of color, you know, would you be interested in being the cinematographer for a couple of my movies? And I said, for sure. So that's what needs to happen, is the money exchange. Mm-hmm. Where the money to make the productions is going is going to the wrong group. So if, if there is some sort of balance and shift in that, in where those billions of dollars go every year. And they were to say, hey, Rakia, here's, you know, $5 million, go make your black movie, or Andy, go make your movie, or, you know, Miriam, go make your movie. I think until then, it's an uphill battle, but there is change and, and it's coming.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love like thinking about like achievable actions and like action items. And I feel like specifically for Vancouver, it's like, come on. In terms of, like, the indie scene, like, we can do better in terms of showcasing Black voices here and supporting Black creators and Black filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Because when I go to, like, these events, like, um, even for Crazy Eight, like, it was so good to see you there, Rikia. I'm like, (laughs) yes, come on now. Like, like we've been here for a very long time. And it's like, as a Black person, I always feel that when we're not there. Mm -hmm. I always feel that. You felt that. absence.
4: Absolutely. I've always wanted to do Crazy Eight's film and after all these years someone finally asked me, I've been asked before, but they were bit parts that I wasn't interested in doing and I didn't feel was appropriate for me to be taking that part from an actor who might be starting out Mm -hmm. um, to be the, excuse me, you can't go in there. And I was just kind of like, that's what you thought?
3: Okay. And in in reality, Rakia, who asked you was a Latina woman. Yes. Right? Yeah. Right. So it wasn't a white man. So here, here's what I'm going for, what, right?
4: y- Exactly.
2: Yes. So
3: yes. You, yes. you got to look at it that way. Right. And in, in, I guess, again, going back to we can or only empower ourselves. And it, it hurts me deeply mm-hmm. to know that it took a Latino woman to hire a black woman in order to be elite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So where, where is the problem here? Right. So. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Um, th- that actually leads me to a question that was uh, put to me by Lynn from VAF, who, who wanted to know how non-Black people of color, uh, people like myself, people like the people behind VAF, who work in the industry, like, how can we support each other to expand the industry so that we all have opportunities and we all have a seat at the table?
4: That's a big question. Um I I, I think that part of it is an old guard of hiring that needs to shift, Mm. and that's pressure. Um, I'd personally love to see some statistics of Canadian productions and what are the racial, uh, uh, like who's getting hired and who's getting hired in what capacity. Um, I'd like to see what the CRTC has to say about that. Mm -hmm. uh they do require a certain amount of points for certain productions to be made and that usually happens within a certain group of friends right um and and if there's a way of mandating to break out of your friend i mean and i get that it's nice to work with people that you've worked with in the past you know you've got a good thing going there's a lot of stakes i get that but if people of color are not given a chance and not given a shot then we are going to perpetuate these ideal uh, this white supremacist ideology here in Canada, and also in America, but I'm not American, so I can't comment on that. Even though I did, and yeah. um, and that
0: needs to change. Yeah, right. but you, you might not be in America, but you are seen in America through the, the productions that you participate in, right? Because we are mm-hmm. a we are a service industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Uh, for yeah. me, I, I'd say I would love to see some sort of these grant platforms. You know, personally, I've gone for a lot of grants. And <laughs> I'm going to say it, even though it's live, I see a lot of people landing the same grants. And those people are yeah. black.
2: Yep. So yeah.
3: So whether it's a black grant to help black artists, emerging artists, you know, where is where are those avenues for us? Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, because we're always looked at, uh, like Marianne said, you know, we're looked at ghetto. We're looked at... Uh, um, um, you know, third world underclass, undervalued. Well, where are those grants that are just going to help Black artists get their voices up? That's what I would love to see in Canada.
4: And there, and there used to be. I remember, like even City TV used to have a diversity program for programming. This was, oh god, I want to say like ten years ago or so. I remember seeing that. I was like, oh, that's cool. And then you know, last year, Andy knows I was looking and you know, I was applying for <laughs> grants and trying to get a film made and. There's nothing there for the Indies. That's a problem in the Indie scene in general um, yeah. that crosses all races. Uh, but then to be a person of color trying to to, to do that? No, it doesn't
0: happen. Um, very soon, we will welcome our two director producers, Zach Lepofsky and Jem Garrard to the conversation. What would you like to hear from them and, and, and people in positions of power like them, you know, moving forward from this moment?
2: I just want to Um, say I'm interested in just like a real honest conversation from them in terms of what, what, what are, what's happening in those rooms that we're not in? mm. And like, what are those conversations actually like when we're not there? And like, like, yeah, I think starting from there, it's like, who is advocating for us? Are they not advocating for us? Are we even brought up in the conversation? I want to know, like, those details from them.
0: Yeah. Okay. Here. <laughs> well, then, well, then why don't we welcome Zach Leposki and Jem Gerard, who have been listening in. Hi, Zach. Hi, Jem. You've been listening to our conversation today. Yeah. Thank you, much for joining us um Thank you guys. i guess you know you've you've been sitting here for for the last 45 minutes listening you've been taking in all of the articles and discussions that's been going on over the last few weeks um what is your initial reaction to everything that you have heard from our black artists today A- any surprises gem zach
5: um no 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 surprises i think we um And thank you all uh, for sharing um, your stories uh, as well. Um, And I've just been, you know, here listening and kind of thinking on uh, my own experiences uh, in Vancouver uh, on productions, um, you know, where we have been, where I've been in, uh, you know, a position to uh, hire black actors. I think I'm, I'm grateful now as a showrunner, um, I have far more power to now not just bring on uh, black actors, but to uh, be able to hire creatives, um, you know, uh, in the room, writers and directors as well. Um, I'm grateful now that I'm in that position to do that. But um, before, when I was working as a director for hire, there were certainly moments um, that kind of had shocked me coming from a indie background and Andy, just to touch on something you said, when you come from that indie background and you're sort of more in control of the stories you're telling and the people you're hiring, it's kind of a shock when you start working professionally uh, to sort of hear some of those conversations that, that go on. Um, and you know, like Miriam said, um, you know, I'd be happy to share those, um, and be honest with my experience as a white creative um, when conversations about hiring black people have come up.
0: Well, I, I'm sure I can speak for everybody. We're definitely interested in hearing what kind of, like what what are the conversations that you're having in the room about hiring black artists?
5: This, um, this sort of happened more early on in my career because like I said, now, you know, it's, I'm in a, a different position to kind of have a more of a say, but you know, as a director for hire, you you do have a say in, in who you're hiring, but you don't have the final say. Um, and, you know, I remember early on in my career being in a casting room with the producer uh, and, um, you know, someone had just uh, a black actor just come in and, and read for the part and left and and we were talking after. And I made a comment that, okay, I really liked this person. You know, you usually send three selects to the, the networker. Are you really like this person? And what was said back to me, I'm gonna remember for like the you know, the rest of my career, I was so naive and ignorant about what was going on, what was said back to me was you've you've already uh, we've already hired a black person, we've already got a black cast member, so this is gonna be really hard to sell, that was what was said to me. And I didn't, you know, my kind of ignorance didn't understand what that meant. And what what I was kind of being told was that we're we're, we're not gonna be able to uh, sell this film, you know, whatever that was, that was the, the international market, whatever it was, we're gonna have trouble selling this film if we have more than uh, one black actor in this film and i was just uh i was i was shocked um uh and kind of you know my eyes were open there and i think um rapier you, you sort of mentioned something earlier on where it, in when you're in these positions you then you kind of you're wondering how much do i kind of push back on this um am i you know going to get fired um You know, what, how much power do I have over this moment? And it was shocking because I, you know, I'd just come off of a really kind of progressive show where we fought really hard to find uh, a black trans actress as the lead role. Mm. And um, suddenly here I was in this room with a white producer being told that two black actors is too much. Um, And you know, I'm not going to name any kind of companies on names now because the fact is it's it is, it's all of them in Vancouver, it's all of the companies, every, I guarantee they've all, you know, the companies making these service, uh, MOWs, they've all had that same conversation, they've all used the excuse that they, we can't sell it, you know, and they've sort of said, you know, been apologetic about it, but just that it comes down to money and we, we, you know, we can't, sell that and so it is like Andy said a way bigger discussion of of changing that of changing of not just kind of being complacent in okay that's an excuse yeah I'll take that excuse and, and just sort of saying um it's it's a, yeah it's a far bigger discussion and I think that it's going to take all of us uh, by all of us I mean white people collectively to speak up um, when that happens, because it's been uh, yeah, because I think I when it happens, so silent in this industry. I think when it happens,
1: it's not the person saying, "I don't want to hire a black person." <laughs> it's well, if we hire someone, there'll be a problem above me, basically, and and everyone keeps sort of passing that upwards. No one, no one says it's their issue. It's I've been told I can't, I can only do this or that, you know. So it's that's why it's a hard thing to. Um, it's not like you can just remove one person and the problem solved. It's a, you have to kind of have a shift over the entire system. Um, so that everyone knows that everyone's jobs are good (laughs) if we, if we move forward, um, and that can happen We've uh, the DGC, we've seen a massive shift on the female director side, just in the last two and a half years, you know, from 23% of the jobs to 43% of the jobs in 2 years. So and that was because of the, the entire system everyone at every level went this is now what we're doing we're aiming for 50% and and so everyone was on board from the top to the bottom.
0: Yeah. Um,
4: but
1: definitely you need you need the you need the top to get in trouble so that then they disseminate it yeah. down. <laughs> to yeah and, who, who's and I think that it.
5: that's exactly it and that's and I think that happens by everyone talking about it, right? Yeah. Now, Jem, you said that that happened
0: earlier in your career as yeah. a director for hire. Yeah. Um, how would you handle that situation now? Then, as a director for hire, is it is it different?
5: Would you would you speak out now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, now I have kind of you know a lot more um, power in a room to be um, well as the showrunner as well. I'm I. I kind of do also have that kind of final say. And so it certainly happened less, um, you know, uh, the kind of more control I've had over a project. But it, it, um, it's still something, it's still an excuse that I hear, um, yeah. you know, that sort of takes the blame off of um, white producers because they're just saying it's not, it's, you know, yeah, like Zach said, I, you know, it's not us, it's above us. Um, but I've I've heard it in in casting rooms. I've heard different things in in casting rooms as well. Um, And um, Rikia, I know you said there are a lot of casting agents here in town who do try really hard. I've also experienced uh, white casting directors who aren't trying hard enough. And um, I've had to push to bring me um, just diverse actors uh because uh we're we see so many we see so many uh white actors and i remember one project in particular and i just i kept asking to see more people i kept asking to see more people to see more people i knew i wasn't being shown the talent that we have in this town um and uh this person sort of I think was getting annoyed at my pushing and sort of turned around and said to me they don't grow on trees and you know that was their statement on it that was you know um that was kind of they yeah it was it was was shocking but I was like well (laughs) just keep it might just keep going keep looking and and there were and we ended up um uh, casting, um, uh, an actor of color in the, in the part, uh, because I went away as well. And, and it was like, can you bring in these people? Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I think it's just going to take, uh, like I said, it's going to, we as white people, we have to, um, we're going to have, it's our fight as well. And we have to speak up. Um, and, we have to make things uncomfortable and we have to make things awkward. And um, yeah, you know, I think that that's just one example of many that comes to mind because I could tell it was uncomfortable and and making it awkward, but I knew that we weren't seeing the talent that we have in this city. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: I would love to open it to, like, like, first of all, Zach and Jem, do you, after after listening to, to Andy and Miriam and Rukia speak, do you have any questions for them about their experiences or about anything that they were talking about?
1: I mean, I, I, the whole reason I'm here is to listen because mm-hmm. that example of the hairdresser not knowing how to work with black hair or something as a director, I, I have the power to correct, but had no idea was an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, like, wow. that's, a, that's a conversation... It makes total sense, but it wasn't something I was aware of because it's never been brought to my attention. And so, but it's very easy to fix. And now anytime I have a a black actor on on set, I'll know to get ahead of that. Um, So those types of specifics make, even though they're, um, they're happening on a regular basis, don't necessarily, aren't necessarily obvious to people who aren't experiencing it. So it's really helpful to hear that type of stuff because then they're very easy. Those are simple things. Uh, to fix and to make sure when, because directors are involved in interviewing the makeup team before they get Mm. hired. And often that's before we know who the actors are gonna be. But if we know that there are gonna be black actors, then that's a very easy thing to show me your portfolio of of black hair or what do you know about black hair? What are you gonna do with the black hair? It's very easy questions to ask and and to ensure that there's someone or bringing in someone that really does know that for those days is, it's very simple to do. Uh, and would have never occurred to me had I not he- heard that. So those type of stories or to hear that is is um really really valuable because it's that's how you kind of can make those those small changes, you know, throughout the whole system.
0: Yeah, simple and yet huge, right? Yeah. Like cuz it's not it's it the, like as Ricky has said, those microaggressions add up, you know. Um what about for Andy and Miriam and Rukia? Do you have any any questions uh, at all for our director producers? Um, any questions? Any statements? Anything that that you want to know about what goes on in, in their in their realm?
3: I guess for me, just uh, as I've worked with Jem before, and Jim, thank you for hiring uh, me <laughs> with uh, crazy hair and whatnot and crazy swag but uh, uh, more of your last show, because you had a lot of uh, sort of black influence on that show. Could you speak on behalf a bit more of that, uh, on that show uh, in terms of utilizing a lot of black uh, people on the set?
5: Yeah, I think Vagrant Queen for me was, um, you know, one of the best experiences of my life. And um, I absolutely loved shooting in Cape Town as well, because it was the most, uh, diverse cast and crew, uh, I've ever, I've ever worked with. Um, and it just made for such a, uh, such a better production where we had so many, um, so many voices. And I think, um, I think the biggest thing I can say about being able to, to, to hire, uh, how we did is that it, it, it does come from the top as well, you know. Like I can say as a showrunner, this is what I want, um, but then I still answer to a network and a studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm I'm honoured that I had um, such a supportive uh, network exec at Sci-Fi who, you know, um, when the project was first there, I think even just before it was greenlit, when we were having conversations, and I said, you know, this is important to me. Um, that was it. Was supported, um, and there was no pushback. Which you know, as I've sort of just kind of shared with you, I've experienced before when trying to bring on my more diversity, and there wasn't there wasn't any of that. And um, it was so refreshing. It was um, such a wonderful experience. Uh, and when you have that support at the top, yeah, it's everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and just for for the record, you. Even though you are based in Vancouver, Vagrant Queen did not shoot in Vancouver, correct? No, so we're... Cape, Cape Town,
5: South Africa. Yeah, Maybe. right. Okay.
0: Um,
4: I had a question. Yes. Um, that's for Zach, actually, because you're repping DGC here. Um, yeah, Jem and
1: I, Jem and I, both sit both. on the same, yeah, directors. Oh, okay.
4: Yeah. Um, is there's been a huge initiative to hire more female directors? Uh, is there any such effort being? Uh,
1: Towards more diverse directors as well. Yeah, definitely. And we've done we've done a huge amount with what we can do. It's it's um, one of the first big obstacles we ran into that Gemini ran into when we first kind of got elected was we discovered that, and this was not that long ago, three years ago, um, that it was illegal to sort of talk about any of the protective grounds and the human rights uh when talking about hiring like so when if a studio was doing a specific show for example the terror that was about japanese internment camps Mm. they it was legal for them to ask for japanese directors because you can't discriminate based on race or um or sexuality or you know disability or any of those protective grounds but we knew that um in a lot of cases, someone's specific experience or their voice is really critical to telling a certain story. And so that if you're doing a a movie about residential school, you might want an Aboriginal filmmaker (laughs) and you might wanna, the Guild wants to be able to be a part of that conversation saying here's our Aboriginal filmmakers, here's our Japanese filmmakers or whatever the case may be. Um, And so we actually went to the Human Rights Tribunal um, And hired a bunch of lawyers and and basically got them to give the um, the DGC specifically an exemption uh, in certain cases so that if if a um, production or producer is creating a project that needs specific voices, um, either just to have a representational group or because the project itself is from a certain story or perspective that's needed, um, it used to be that when Disney would call and say, who are your female directors or who are your black directors? It was illegal for us to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, now what we allowed to do, uh, we just got the approval is for the directors who self-identified any of their protective traits, um, knowing, they've basically allow, we've allowed our members to, to self-identify any of the traits that they would like to be known in the hiring process when appropriate. And we can then provide that information to the employer, assuming they have mm-hmm. a bona fide sort of vetted um, diversity program and sort of, and it's, you know, done with respect rather than, because there's always a danger in, in that information being used negatively. So we've mm. done a lot of work to make sure that it's, it's voluntary and it's with, with um, places that are, that are using that information to, because the human rights tribunal, when we made our case, it was very clear that those rules, which are there to make sure that when someone's hiring a waitress, it doesn't matter what race they are, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Um, it was clear that those rules were preventing to preventing the ability to to fix the discrimination that was happening, um, because when people were even wanting to to have representational, um, you know, crew or cast or whatever, we weren't able to to do anything to help. So now we can, and that's been really great. Um, that one of the obstacles we ran into is it's, it's a, it, we've gotten the legality in Canada, but a lot of the people are dealing with are American. And in some cases it's their corporations that are still, it's still illegal for them to basically consider a race when considering employment. And so it's hard to have those conversations because they're worried about getting sued saying that they're considering that at all. Um, but in other cases they are, very overt about it, and we're there to kind of try and promote the members that we have.
0: I, I was furrowing my brow because I'm like, okay, so it's illegal for them to talk about race, but they will come up here and do their all-white show, and then hire the token person of color, and that's legal. Yeah, <laughs> but to but to talk about it about you know the 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 creative you know the team and who's involved that that's not legal. Hmm.
1: Interesting. I just want to say that. It has to be a social thing so that it becomes a movement that everyone's subscribing to um, and that, you know, things like this are really powerful so that it becomes something that you don't even think about. I mean, that's when you asked earlier, what's the success level that we want to get to? It's, it's where there is, there's no stigma. Like I, one, one example of that that I think of is, is my mom is a, is a producer. and was a producer her whole, whole life. And there really isn't a stigma to, I would, maybe I'm totally wrong because I'm a a male (laughs) saying this, but in general, I've worked with so many female producers. When when you meet a female producer, nobody thinks you're a woman and you're producing, like there's no way you could produce. Maybe that's true. But in general, I've worked with so many that it seems like uh, in that specific role, no one really thinks about gender if you're a producer. And ideally, you you know, you you aim to get to the place where um, that no one's thinking you can't do this because of any of your protective traits.
2: And I I really appreciate, Zach, you bringing in the languaging of human rights because I feel like that is something that I usually as well go to in terms of advocating for like more diverse voices on the team or in that particular project. And I really appreciated, Jem, as well, you just being honest about some of your experiences because the issue when we keep like deflecting things to the higher ups is like, it takes forever for change to happen. So we need to feel like we're all involved, involved in, in this fight because we are, and do the work internally for you to understand that that you have decision-making power, and you can make a change and make a difference. Because when I hear that story that you said, that like, OK, we can hire one Black actor, but if we hire another, then it's a Black movie. And then that doesn't sell, or that's not what we want to do. I'm like, where is the humanity in that?
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. Um, we We are starting to uh, get some questions from our audience. Uh, and if you have questions, please please ask them on uh, on Facebook and and on YouTube and uh, we will we will try to get to as many as possible. Um, this This question is from uh, Andy, uh, and it's directed to Zach and Jem. Can you ex- can you expand on how the DGCBC is expanding uh, their roster of uh, BIPOC? directors? How do you get on the list? Can you get on the list if you're not a member of
5: DGC?
1: It's a a tricky thing because the DGC basically um, isn't, the requirement to join is that you've gotten a job. So in some ways, obviously there's a systematic (laughs) oppression of who's getting those jobs. And so that kind of, there's no, there's no filter. There's no jury that says, okay, we're picking these people or that people to to join the DGC. It's just basically who's getting the work. So then our efforts have to be on sort of outside of the DGC, trying to support um, any of the places that promote artists um, like the crazy eights. We, you know, we were the presenting sponsor, of the crazy eights. I sit on the jury, of the crazy eights and funding the organizations that are, that are fueling a diverse filmmaker group, at the beginning of their careers, so that they um, have the type of work that then gets them hired. And once they're hired, basically, they just sort of automatically join the DGC. Yeah. At that point. Okay.
0: Um, I I also wanted to ask you, uh, Zach, because uh, you had kind of alluded to this before. Um, we are. I, I asked this of our other of our of our black artists at the beginning, but you know we are a service town you know even if the dgc has a, a certain stance and ubcp and all the various guilds and unions have a stance if if we are continuing to service these productions like do you think it's possible to fight anti-black racism while we are producing shows that hold to the old formula you know and like i guess also like what kind of power like can the like what can the DGC do on its own, you know, and like does it really have that kind of power, you know, when dealing with with American yeah. productions?
1: I mean, it's it, it takes everyone, it takes a whole movement of people, and it takes putting pressure at the highest level. Like, if the reason we went from 20% to 40% women in two years is because the studios put a 50% requirement onto their shows, right. and that sort of forced the change because then everyone knew our shows only greenlit if we do this, and it so. You need to but to get to that point took sort of two years of me too and and all the different organizations putting pressure, um, you know human rights organizations and labor organizations putting pressure at the corporate level. So um, you know that's in a lot of ways uh, what we can do. And, and beyond that, it's it's trying to just promote and show those voices as much as we can. Um so that there's not so much of a stigma around it.
5: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and S- Sabrina, just to add uh, a point onto Zach's and it was a um, something uh, I just wanted to add after Miriam, your last point as well. I think, you know, it is like you said, Zach, it's gonna take uh, it's gonna take that pressure. And I've been seeing it more, um, I've been seeing the sort of beginnings of that change recently when more uh, white people speak out about uh, what they've experienced uh, and and um, a lot of those microaggressions. Um, just as an example, um, you know, Hallmark and Lifetime have recently been called out for, uh, you know, never allowing, you know, uh, interracial couples on screen. Um, and it was always so subtle. Uh, it, these are never written rules, right? They're always sort of whispered and spoken about and on phone calls. You're not going to find these rules written down. And so, but they're there and everyone that's worked on these movies know that they're there. Um, and they, it's always just been sort of quiet and swept under the rug. And we've only recently been starting to talk about it. And suddenly, you know, now these companies can't deny it when we talk about it and we put it in the open. And so now... You know, they're they got their backs up, and they're well, like, they, oh, "We're we're not. Deny we'll do it."
1: <laughs> like Hallmark did deny it this morning, saying, "We've never had that policy." Like, uh, and we're okay. calling everyone we work with to tell them we don't yep. have that policy. Yeah. But oh, you know, yeah. that's the type of pressure that you need is you need them to be saying that because well, yeah,
5: yeah, exactly. People are
1: now they're having well, to prove that they don't have that policy.
5: And and it's exactly we saw that with um, when everybody spoke out after, you know, they showed uh, the commercial. They, they showed. Yeah, the, how homophobic mm. they were, mm. and again, it's always been just quietly and like swept under the rug, and and then when you put it in their face and we're all loud about it, they are forced to um, to make a statement. No, we are not homophobic. No, we are not racist. No, and then it's like, okay, great, prove it. So yeah. we just we have to keep calling it out, and we have to, um, yeah, we have to be loud about it.
2: I was going to say about that, though, like, I will say a lot of, like, POCs have been talking about that,
5: Mm -hmm.
2: kind of like, uh, I think Sabrina even mentioned, like, um, on our, like, panels and et cetera, but the thing with which was powerful about that particular call-up, like, that's also um, a white person saying, okay, I'm saying this now, and because Mm of us living in a white supremacist society, it's like you're heard in a way in which we cannot be heard and yeah, it's yeah. like when you use that in allyship with us it's like that's when we can really unfortunately that's how it ha- has to work but that really helps us in our like liberation struggle
1: yeah, yeah well specifically yeah. it has mm-hmm. to as a corporation if they know that their audience is upset about it then they'll really <laughs> then they'll <lift laughs> they'll yeah. really pay attention <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah no, like,
5: you're exactly right we have to use yeah that's we have to use our privilege
0: This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds. And the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The Fish Flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the Fish Flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows, that old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com.